we may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations, infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business. Between the Lines with Andrea Gilligan. This is News Talk. You're welcome along to this week's Between the Lines programme with myself, Andrea Gilligan, where we'll be taking a closer look at some of the main stories and issues of interest. We're back after a short summer break and last week's episode was a repeat of this very programme, which won this year's Justice Media Award, the programme focused on the law and anonymity. You can still listen back to the podcast on our website with all of our other podcasts at newstalk.com or as always, you can get in contact with us today by emailing between the lines at newstalk.com or on Twitter of myself at Andrea Gilligan. Well, on today's programme, we're turning our attention to homelessness because all this week here on the station, we're shining a light on homelessness with Focus Ireland. Joining us to discuss the first part of today's programme is Pat Dennigan, who's the CEO of Focus Ireland. Pat, my thanks to you for taking the time to join us here on the programme today. Just first of all, in terms of where we're at with the issue of homelessness at the moment in this country, just take us through the position at the minute. Thanks for having me on, Andrea. Um, the, the issue of homelessness is, is still a massive issue for, for lots and lots of people. The, the numbers, uh, most recent numbers that were announced, say that there's about 8,876 people um, homeless at the moment. Now, that's down, and it's a good thing. It's down from about uh, last October when it was about 10,500. And the primary reason that um, it's come down are the effect of a lot of the uh, uh, restrictions uh, implemented as part of the, the COVID-19 lockdown. Uh, they have had a dramatic effect on, on improving the situation, thankfully, for people who are homeless in this country. It would seem most bizarre, though, Pat, that it took a global pandemic, a situation like the scale of COVID-19, to try and actually address the numbers um, of people who were declared as homeless in this country. That's right. Uh, it, it, it's, it is bizarre that, that something of that nature would, would have this effect. Uh, but certainly a number of people, including ourselves, have been calling for uh, changes and reforms to be made in the tenancies legislation and the position for tenants. In the main, people uh, become homeless in this country. They, they, they come from uh, the private rented accommodation sector. There are people who have had, in some cases, long-standing tenancies, people who've been renting um, accommodation for a long period of time, uh, and for various reasons, uh, which have been the subject of some of the uh, COVID-19 restrictions. Um, they, they, they sometimes appear, but they appear homeless and they, and, and they present as homeless. Some of those things were around uh, the legislation that we have at the moment, um, a lot of those people, probably up to about a third, are people who were happily renting in their accommodation and the landlord is either selling the property or um, refurbishing that property or indeed moving family members in. Um, and some of the restrictions that came in as part of COVID-19. So you're talking you, about things, Pat, for instance, like the, the, the evictions ban, the freeze on the rent hikes, this kind of stuff. Right. That's right. That's right. That that in effect that stopped uh, the flow of people into homelessness over the period of the lockdown. 
and as a result, and and also it, it, it's fair to say, and also there was um, because of um, more accommodation became on the market, mainly because of the accommodation, some of the accommodation that was um, subject to Airbnb tenancies and, and released on for Airbnb for holidaymakers, that came into the market as long-term accommodation for people. Uh, so both of those things had a positive effect on the homeless numbers. And really what's really important now is that as we manage our way out of COVID-19 and out of the lockdown, out of those restrictions, that we manage it to make sure that we don't create uh, a side effect of that being uh, greater numbers homeless. What do you mean by that, Pat? Well, as if we went back to the, the, uh, the normal routine, the normal regime that we had, uh, we could in effect have uh, people who become homeless because of those restrictions are being lifted. We could see, for example, if the if the restrictions on uh, landlords selling um, their their properties and 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 giving someone a notice to terminate, uh, that could in turn lead to um, uh, people presenting as homeless uh, with the local authorities. So you're saying then things like, and I know there is obviously discussions about this underway at the moment, but you're saying things like the um, the rent freeze hike, the likes of the eviction bans, that you're saying it's as simple as that, 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 that that's part of the key measures in reducing figures. It's, it's, I think it's really important, what I'm saying is really important that, that as we manage our way out of COVID-19, we make sure that, that this, this situation isn't created again, and uh, that that crisis, that the crisis of COVID-19 doesn't become a homeless crisis again. What about the number of properties and the supply of properties and, and, and those kind of units that are being made available? I mean, obviously, as part of the restrictions, a lot of construction work had to stop for a period of time. And therefore, builders and developers are going to be behind in some cases and, you know, in, in trying to get a lot of the work finished in some of the developments in which they'd started, which might prevent, have a knock on effect then in trying to get new units off the ground. Does that concern you heading into the new year? It very much does, yes. Uh, some commentators if, if we go back over the last 12 months and more, some commentators like the ESRI would say that we need about 35,000 new homes uh, built in this country each year for the next five years. Um, I think last year we would have completed about something like 21 or 22,000 homes. So we were shy of even that number uh, last year in a full year. And no doubt the impact of, of COVID will have a, a, an impact on the numbers completed this year. It, it's unclear yet as to what that impact will be, but it could be of the order of you know, 50 or 60%. Uh, it could, the numbers could be down to. Um, and as a result, we're going to have that issue right through for the next number of years. So that's really important. I'm cur- curious and interested, Pat, as to how other countries, other European countries, maybe with a similar sort of a demographic and a number of people living in homelessness as we have here in Ireland, how are they reacting now coming out of COVID restrictions? The, the period of, of COVID-19 in Ireland has been, particularly for homeless people, has been extremely difficult, as you can imagine. It's extremely difficult to, to self-isolate and, and to, to quarantine yourself and to keep yourself and your family safe when you don't have a home. Uh, I think we have all found that, that we've all withdrawn into our own homes and, and tried to keep ourselves and our families safe and out of the normal environment that we would have had. Having said that, the, the, there's been a dramatic, um, uh, successfully, successful um, effort on behalf of the state 
uh, on behalf of non-government agencies, NGOs like Focus Ireland, right through the, the, the lockdown. Um, it's been the, the level of uh, effort that's gone in through the HSE, through the Department of Housing, through the local authorities and through the, the, some of the charities has been dramatic and has a huge has a huge impact on making mm-hmm. sure that people are kept safe uh, during the time of the uh, during the time of the lockdown. And have there been any other measures, perhaps maybe new types of measures that were introduced, Pat, in, in other countries that have since been brought in? I think the the, the, the housing and accommodation market varies uh, a lot from from country to country, um, but obviously we're at the start here of a new government and a new program for government. And Focus Ireland came out during the election and came out during the uh, uh, the period, the last little period, of uh, with with five proposals and suggestions to be incorporated into a, a government platform. Um, three of those were accepted, and we're delighted about that. Uh, three of those were included having um, a specific uh, youth homelessness strategy. So for people who are uh, young people who don't have a history in the housing market, don't have a history of accommodation, to put them on the, on, on, a, on a strong footing uh, with regard to getting housing and, and starting them on, uh, having a new start in life, number one. Uh, number two is uh, holding a, a referendum on the right to a home. Um, in a lot of cases over the last number of years, People have asked. Uh, various proposals have been have haven't gone forward because uh, of constitutional difficulties. Uh, I'm trying to address that and rebalance our constitution uh, to include that right to a home is something we've been calling for for some time. And the last one is to, to really take a long-term view um, on um, on the housing market and develop a commission on housing to make sure that it doesn't become just, uh, you know, uh, an annual or a government-type uh, responsibility, that, that we actually have a look at this for a lo- much longer horizon to ensure that we're, we're creating enough homes for our, for our, our people. The latter um, proposal is something which would be similar to what other European countries have, in, in that they take a very long-term view uh, of the supply of housing. And these are the measures that you've put forward in your proposal to the new government. That's right, and 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 those those three um, were included in the in, in new program for government. And now, obviously, during the COVID nineteen restrictions, a lot of that might have been pushed back. But you're you're still satisfied with the level of measures that have been included so far. We we would have liked other things to go in as well, but we're we're certainly pleased that that those three proposals uh, are are part of the government's uh, work for the next number of years. I want to ask you about research that was carried out by Focus Ireland about people's experience in homelessness um, in this country and maybe perhaps even the age at which people often first enter homelessness in Ireland. It's it's in around the the eighteen mark, the the early there the late teens. Is that right, Pat? There's, there's a bunch of reasons for people uh, presenting as homeless in this country. Uh, certainly, youth homelessness is, is one particular area and a particular concern of ours. Um, and in many cases, um, that's be, just be, people, you know, uh, move on with their lives and they become 18, they become adults, and uh, they, they look for some place to live. In Ireland, that's exacerbated with the fact that we have... Um, we have difficulties in the supply of one-bedded accommodation and the smaller unit accommodation. It, it, the, the amount of accommodation of that size isn't available to people, uh, and typically that's what what uh, some of the young people would uh, would uh, would require and would best suited to their needs. 
so that's certainly a, a major uh, a major issue, and hopefully that can be addressed as part of that program for government. What sort of funding do you think is required to try and really put a you know a stamp or try and really address this, Pat? Uh, that that varies. Um, it's it, and it varies particularly from the point of view of it's not just about providing someone with a house or on a roof over their heads. In many many cases, uh, what's also required is uh, the ability to provide support and to make sure that somebody keeps that home. Uh, and some of that some of those supports typically get provided by the likes of ourselves, Focus Ireland, in that we work with people to have a support plan and work with them over a long number of years to make sure that they keep that home and they integrate into the community. So it's very much both a capital and an operating uh, model that, that you, you need to include. And sometimes that can be over a long number of years. It's interesting that the figure is, you know, just in the in the last couple of months, there have been some reduction. I'm talking now about before the COVID-19 19 period. But I mean, what is sort of your aim now over the next couple of months when we come out of COVID-19? Ultimately, our aim, and this is a big statement, but ultimately our aim is to end homelessness in Ireland. We've been trying to do that for, 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 the, for the length of our existence. And, and what we'd like to do is propose... Uh, really meaningful measures um, that people like the government and other state agencies can develop and implement uh, to achieve that goal. We believe that is achievable. Uh, it's a tall order, and it's a, it's a, I suppose it's a goal that we're setting the bar for for everyone very high. We can't do that on our own. Um, it's what we can what we can do is try to demonstrate through our staff, through the experience of people that we encounter, and our research. What the um, what that solution can be. Pat Dennigan, CEO of Focus Ireland. My thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. Well, you're very welcome back to the second part of this week's Between the Lines programme here on News Talk with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion all this week here on News Talk. We're shining a light on homelessness with Focus Ireland and we're continuing our discussion today about how homelessness might be improved post-COVID-19. Well, joining us on the programme is Dr Paula Mayock, who is an assistant professor of the School of Social Work and Social Social Policy at Trinity College Dublin. Uh, Paula, my thanks to you for joining us on Between the Lines today. Um, Just first of all, what's your assessment of the homelessness situation situation here in Ireland at the moment? Well... Obviously, the the crisis has continued. Uh, the increase is evident since 2013-2014, approximately. We have seen some more recent decreases in family homelessness, but uh, our rates of homelessness still remain um, extremely high. In terms of the number of people entering into homelessness services or people that are declaring themselves as homeless? We have the PASS system. Um, it, it basically records all entries into homelessness. So there, there is a steady flow of people coming into homelessness. And this, obviously, the, the, those in families uh, are presenting at a particularly high rate and have been for a number of years. But also, we have a significant problem of single family or single homelessness. In other words, singles, both men and women of all ages, presenting as homeless. As homeless. How do you think the country fared out during the COVID-19 restrictions in, in, in terms of dealing with the homelessness situation? Well, I think um, we do know that, that actually, um, in terms of 
controlling the uh, COVID outbreaks, for example, in emergency accommodation, that that uh, things have worked out very well. There, we have low rates of uh, COVID uh, infection, and uh, thankfully, a, a low number of COVID-related deaths. So uh, that's a, a very good news story, and it, it certainly highlights that in the context of this crisis, when people got together and put in place processes and mechanisms, that it certainly helped to it helped to protect uh, people in homelessness from contracting COVID-19. Are these mechanisms that you think could and should be extended now, post when the restrictions are lifted? Well, I think that it would be important to evaluate and assess it uh, systematically what precisely those uh, mechanisms, what what they entailed, and uh, to assess whether some of those uh, should and ought to be maintained into the future. Uh, Obviously, we're not out of the COVID crisis by any means. So for the moment, presumably, uh, all of these interventions or or, or these, as I say, processes and mechanisms are continuing for the moment. And should uh, a proper and systematic assessment of those uh, should be undertaken because, in fact, we don't precisely know and I'm not aware uh, personally of of what precisely happened there, but we certainly know that that it's, it's, as I say, a good news story for for the homeless service sector and for clients uh, and uh, of um, homelessness services. In your own work, as in in the School of Social Work and, and Social Policy, I want to ask you about the impact of homelessness on people and, and in particular as well, Paula, on young people who either are growing up living in, in, a, in, a, in a homeless situation or very young people, even, even often in the ages of kind of 18, 19, that are accessing and in need of accessing homelessness supports and services. What sort of an impact does this have on people? Well, the impact, uh, I think, for anybody who's homeless is dramatic in, in a negative sense. Uh, for young people, you know, the level of destabilisation um, across all aspects of their lives related to education, related to uh, just uh, basic necessities, uh, but also in, in terms of their relationships, their relationships with family, their relationships with friends, their lack of uh, connectivity, connectivity to community, uh, all of these have a detrimental impact. Um, the level of insecurity, precarity, and so on, and simply an inability to move forward with one's life, that it's it's obviously not conducive to planning for the future. Um, but also they, there's a, a, a huge stigma attached to homelessness, and for young people in particular, it, obviously, I, I mean, any anybody listening knows that it's, it's, it's not desirable uh, or... Um, acceptable for uh, very young people to be out of home and we know from this recent research for example from Focus Ireland that a large proportion of young people between the age of 18 and 25 they are experiencing what's defined as episodic homelessness which essentially means that they're constantly moving in and out of um, systems of emergency accommodation. Uh, we don't exactly know where they go when they leave um, those emergency systems of accommodation, but the, the likelihood is that they're living in situations of hidden homelessness. And what exactly does that entail? I mean, these aren't people who, you know, maybe have just returned home from a college situation and, and can't afford to pay, pay, pay rent on um, perhaps a unit or on an apartment. These are people who have grown up in this situation. The, the vast majority of, of 
people in Ireland, or young people in Ireland who become homeless, come from poor neighbourhoods and come from uh, uh, basically situations of, of low income or poverty. So these young people, they can't necessarily return home. Some of them can return home. And in fact, there is a lot of work going on in terms of family mediation. Focus Ireland has set up a family mediation service, which has been piloted and now is run and is funded by PUSLA, the Child and Family Agency. So certainly work can be done with families to help um, young people to return home, to facilitate family reunification and so on. But there are other circumstances where it's not appropriate for a young person to return home. And what that young person needs is housing stability. So what do you think the government needs to do now that we have a new government, we have a new programme for government um, and we just spoke to Pat uh, Pat Dennigan from Focus Ireland a few moments ago and he talked about some of the three different aspects from Focus Ireland that they would like to see contained and are contained now in the current programme for government. What do you think the housing minister would need to do to try and address some of these key issues? Well, the, the I'm not sure what Pat spoke to there but in a few moments ago, but the, the most immediate consideration is is, is that we, and and priority is that we need to ensure that young people get out of emergency accommodation at the earliest possible juncture. It is extremely damaging for young people to continue to navigate that system. So we need um, uh, appropriate housing, and uh, I mean the, the government, the governments, uh, past governments have long since uh, prioritised this whole notion of housing first. But unfortunately, we haven't really moved forward with that at the pace uh, that is desirable. If we if we don't provide appropriate, affordable housing, we will have young people entering into a state of chronic homelessness where they're it, 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 essentially moving around the system. Um, and uh, that that has detrimental consequences. As I said previously, they can't engage uh, with education, training, or even employment. They don't have a, an address. They don't have that level of stability. So I think that uh, obviously, you know, a, a, a basic priority is to provide uh, affordable housing for young people. And in, we, we have at the moment under the likes of the Rebuilding Ireland, we have affordable housing schemes that are currently out there. Now, there, there, there's a lot of commentary about the, the the affordability of some of these homes and, and the kind of requirements that are that there are currently set in stone for people to be able to apply through some of the different programmes. But do you think could that of those affordable types of housing, could they take a different form? Well, I mean, when we're talking about young people, Yes, we do need a whole range of affordable types of housing, but we also need to provide and to be in a position to provide uh, housing in-housing support based on a, on a needs assessment. And not all young people, although some of them are uh, capable, but not all are capable of just moving into housing and sustaining that housing. They will need skills training, assistance with uh, uh, issues such as bills, of um, just financing and running a home. Uh, so that that is, in fact, an, assist, an essential component of Housing First for young people, that they're they provided with housing, but with the option of in-housing support based on a, a thorough needs assessment. And that would mean, mm. for some people, it might mean that somebody checks in with them every few days, for another person once a week, or for other people only just once a month. But to enable 
sustainability of housing um, in housing support uh, will be needed in some cases, particularly if um, young people have a particular type of need or indeed a range of complex needs. How does that in-house training that you've talked about, Paula, how does that actually work? Is that something that could be done maybe even at a younger level? It is. It, it, it certainly is. But in, in terms of providing in-housing support, it's normally provided by key workers. So are these people that in many cases, you know, the young people might already be dealing with? Yes, that they, 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 would, they would be attached to a key worker or have a key worker available to them, which would be part of the housing intervention, if you like. Mm. Now, it's not ne- it, it wouldn't necessarily be necessary for every young person, but certainly with young people who have particular needs, maybe around mental health or around issues related to uh, drug use, addiction, that they would need um, some level of housing support, at least for a period. And that would enable them to become essentially independent in their housing. Uh, there is Canadian research, for example, that indicates that when young people move out of homelessness into housing, they can experience a lot of difficulties, including a decline in their mental health for a period. So basically, some young people go through a period of essentially learning to become rehoused. So all of the, you know, the, these kinds of interventions in terms of sustainability into the future and ensuring that young people don't return to homelessness, mm. they do warrant um, you know, deep consideration. So it's not just about getting people out of homelessness and getting them into a home. It's then about the focus turns to keeping people in that home and making sure that they don't re-enter a homelessness situation. Yes, the, the housing is an essential first step, but in all cases, it won't necessarily be the only uh, part of, of the plan to house and to maintain people in housing. Do you think is enough attention being focused on that area? Well, I think actually in terms of, since we're, we're a little bit focused here on youth, I think that the whole area of youth homelessness has been neglected. The, what we know from, from the, the picture of, of youth homelessness that it, it actually is entirely resolvable if we have the resolve to do that. Um, one of the big problems related to a failure to resolve youth homelessness is that um, many of the, these young people, if their homelessness isn't resolved, they move into the adult domain and they continue in that. So they, they essentially, you know, youth homelessness becomes a feeder, if you like, for adult homelessness if we fail, if we were failed to resolve it at an early juncture. We do have... Uh, examples, small-scale projects run by Focus Ireland here in Ireland and that have been evaluated and are, have been very successful. And interestingly, these uh, interventions are, are based outside of, of Dublin in the main rather than in Dublin where the youth homelessness crisis or youth homelessness problem is concentrated. So what we need to expand these programmes and to, uh, to evaluate them uh, as time passes, uh, to learn from from mistakes, but we certainly need um, to put in place these uh, housing programs that enable young people to um, to, to move out of the status um, of homelessness, which is extremely 
damaging and which will lead to further uh, and deeper problems down the line, essentially. Is it is it as simplistic, Paula, as if we can sort out the youth homelessness issue down the line, whether it be in 10 years, that will help to reduce the adult homeless problem? It will help to reduce it. Now, it won't that people enter into homelessness beyond the age of 25. So it won't, it, it, it's not a, a cure-all or a fix-all, but it will certainly alleviate the number in adult homelessness further down years. So if somebody is 19 and their homelessness gets resolved and then they don't come back into the system. And uh, emergency accommodation is an extremely costly intervention. So, Mm. uh, but apart from the financial costs, there are are social and human costs involved uh, to becoming homeless or being homeless at any stage across the life course. Okay. Dr. Paula Maycock from Trinity College Dublin, the Assistant Professor at the School of Social Work and Social Policy. Paula, my thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines today. You're listening to News Talk's Between the Lines programme. We'll be back with more on this issue in just a moment. Between the Lines on News Talk. You're welcome back to today's Between the Lines programme here on News Talk with myself, Andrea Gilligan. We're continuing our discussion as part of this week's series here on News Talk. We're shining a light on homelessness with Focus Ireland. Joining me on the programme now is Orla Hegarty, who's an architect and also assistant professor at the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. Orla, just in terms of the various different responses um, that have been taken by the government, by previous governments, in terms of trying to deal with the homelessness situation here in this country, something that we've seen the figures rise uh, many months after months over, over the past number of years. Can I just get your assessment of it, first of all? Well, I think what we see in the homelessness figures is the really sharp end of, of a whole lot of housing distress. Um, the homelessness figure is, is one measure of, of people who are the most vulnerable and, and suppose the people who have no roof over their head. It doesn't it doesn't show um, all of the other people who are dealing with uh, overcrowding or very high rents or kind of precarious conditions. And it doesn't count street homelessness and, and other categories that are counted in other, other countries. So the homelessness figures that we have obviously have, have been growing over the last number of years. Uh, and particularly alarming, I suppose, is the is family homelessness and children, um, something that was unknown. 10 years ago, uh, you know, homelessness then tended to be among single adults uh, and family homelessness is is quite a new feature. Uh, And that has brought all sorts of other challenges, obviously, um, as the numbers have grown and as people have been um, put into emergency housing and then more recently put into um, what are called family hubs, where there is sort of an institutional setting um, uh, uh, rather than into, you know, an independent form of, of their own housing. And how does that compare, for instance, with other countries in terms of the address or the the way in which they address the situation? Well, it's difficult to make comparisons because different countries count things differently um, uh, and we don't count some of the categories that are counted elsewhere. But if you look like countries that have had a success, maybe like um, like Finland, where they have, uh, have had, had housing first policy, which is basically that if you house people um, as the, in the first instance, uh, you can deal with so many other problems afterwards to do with education and training and you know access to other services um putting people into kind of temporary situations and, and we saw lots of people when the pandemic um uh, happened uh, who were living in hotel rooms with children for for months and years in some cases and um, people living in those kind of institutional settings where they were sharing kitchens um, and sharing other facilities and often families sharing uh, bedrooms where they didn't have you know privacy and didn't have space to isolate people 
um, if they were ill and things like that. So we need to kind of, I suppose, look at the longer term implications and the impact on people living like that. It's, it's not good for their health. It's not good for children who are trying to, um, you know, access uh, education, but also become part of the community because people are very uh, in precarious conditions there. And, and, you know, it's hard for children to get involved in sports teams or to have, you know, any kind of social life in a community or get to know people. And, and people are sometimes put into conditions where they're quite far away from their family and support networks and maybe having to travel across the city to, to get to schools or to access childcare. I know your own background and, and, and your area of expertise, obviously, Orla, is in the um, architectural and planning sector. And I think what's interesting is that when you look at the homelessness situation, one of the, the key areas that's been identified today is the fact that there's just such a, a lack of properties and we need more supply in order to try and you know get, get people into their own homes. Obviously, the COVID-19 restrictions has, has put some halt to the number of properties that are currently being um, developed and, and, and being made available at the moment. But what do you see as the solution in terms of the, the types and kind of accommodation that might be out there? Well, I think we need to channel, challenge this idea that, that supply is the solution to everything. Um, I think we need to look underneath the bonnet a little bit with that. Um, that's promoting new build, uh, which takes a lot of time. Um, and obviously supports that new build sector. But if we look at what's available, you know, you'll see once the pandemic struck that um, something like 5,000 um, uh, holiday let units in the city were suddenly uh, available. Um, and obviously, as the clampdown on tourism has continued, um, there's a lot of capacity there. There's also a huge amount of vacancy around the country in residential property. There were 180,000 um, vacant uh, properties at the time of the last census. Um, and we've got a huge amount of commercial vacancy on upper floors in town. So what we really need to be thinking about is strategically, how do we make best use of the stock that's available? Um, particularly, uh, homelessness tends to affect smaller households, you know, one, two and three people who are really well suited to being in over-the-shop units or being in towns where they're part of a community and where people have permanent housing. It's also by far the quickest way of housing people. You know, for 30, 40, 50,000, in a lot of cases, you can do an upgrade to those kind of empty spaces uh, and have people permanently housed within a number of months and maybe use some energy grants in order to do that. Um, so it gets away from that idea of kind of trans- transients and warehousing people and starts to you know, put footfall into towns again and into suburban areas. So I think rather than thinking supply and new build is the answer to everything, we need to think about what resources we have readily available. Uh, and there's plenty of, of vacant space that just needs an upgrade um, that could make an enormous difference. I mean, Dublin City Council did a, a number of years ago where they found uh, that they did a count of over 4,000 um, suitable spaces in upper floors in the city centre between the canals. And that could house 10,000 people over, you know, in a number of months if that was accessed and refurbished and tenants were put in. And now that we're in a situation where a lot of the city centre, you know, retail and restaurant businesses are struggling with income, um, it's a very good time maybe to look at an alternative income source for them, you know, by targeting some of these vacant spaces, uh, by helping people in a, a kind of package of measures to do refurbishments, employ people in the process, and put people, you know, where they, the shopholder or the, the person who occupies the building maybe and has space could have a rental income from that uh, guaranteed for the next five years or more. So, okay, so I think, you know, we can stretch the resources and, and, and use them much more efficiently. Yeah, so c- can I just ask, Orla, what you're suggesting, I just want to make sure you're right, we already have a vacant site levy on empty sites, but you're actually saying in relation to um, a vacant property levy, is that right? 
Well, I'm not talking about a levy. I think it should be supportive of people who have these buildings. You know, uh, penalising people doesn't always direct the right actions and, and often there can be loopholes in those schemes. I think what we need is, uh, and there was a regulatory proposal, in fact, proposed by, by Fianna Fáil and maybe the, the new minister can now act on it, uh, which went right through the um, Oireachtas Housing Committee two years ago um, and had full support. And that was really to put in place a one-stop shop where owners of these buildings, um, you know, maybe where they had a shop downstairs and vacancy, upstairs could come into a local authority, sit around a table, get approval for a modest amount of money within a matter of, of days on a kind of pragmatic solution as to what was safe, you know, um, safety being, being the ultimate uh, um, important thing here, so that they had an approval within a, within a very short space of time to get on site with this and that that was lined up with energy saving grants and various other supports and then a quality check at the end. And that had a lot of support, uh, as I said, it was proposed by um, by Fianna Fáil a couple of years ago and it had full support uh, at the time as a, a, you know, a way of removing some of the regulatory barriers but also giving support and a lot less cost to the people who own the buildings. Now, given that we're in a different situation and people will be looking for other income streams, it's probably a very good time to, to pursue that. In terms of the types of buildings that we, we might look at, I mean, we don't see too many high-rise buildings in Dublin in terms of the, the types of accommodation through through apartments. Is that something that you think that sh- should be revisited? Well, well, high-rise is high cost and high risk, and, and it's only workable for very high-end uses. So, you know, if you look at any city, the, the high-rise are either corporate offices that have a very um, high rental or they're um, high, you know, high-end hotels or their penthouses. Um, high, high rise is high cost. It's also not livable for, for families. Um, but at, and, and at this kind of uh, juncture that we're at, it's not the way to get uh, development happening quickly uh, because you need a massive amount of investment to do it. Um, the more modest type of development, whether it's terraced housing or apartments at three, four, five or six floors, um, is something that can be built more quickly, is a lot more um, cost optimal for, for the for building. Uh, can be turned around more quickly and, and is much more suitable to being livable. You know, where people can have, you can have balconies at the third or fourth or fifth floor. You can't have a balcony at the tenth floor uh, because it's because it's high wind. Um, and you know, there's a lot of other considerations with buildings to do with safety and fire escape. And, um, yeah, I mean, even if we think about um, uh, the use of lifts, I mean, the recommendation now with COVID is that one person or one family at a time use a lift. Um, so you can imagine the logistical problems that's going to be in buildings where people. Um, you know, have to go beyond a couple of floors or people have mobility problems. Um, so, you know, uh, the whole uh, notion of high-rise, I think, in some simplistic way, might feel like you can stack more people on site. But in practical terms of designing a building, you know, the higher you go, the more of the space at the lower levels is used up, moving services up and down, pumping water, putting in lifts and staircases. So buildings start to become very efficient when they're high, and that's why they're quite expensive. Um, so, uh, and then you have issues with openable windows, at, you know, with wind at high level uh, when we're looking to you know, achieve better ventilation for health at the moment. So there are a lot of other issues, I think, that are um, uh, connected with high rise buildings that need to be really carefully considered um, rather than just thinking it's a simplistic solution because building more expensive buildings that take longer time really isn't the answer. Dublin has uh, no amount of, of space available, unlike a lot of other cities we have. Um, any amount of, of zoned residential land and ready-to-go planning permissions. Um, so going back in on sites for higher buildings um, and uh, thinking that that's the answer really isn't. We, we have lots of sites that are ready to go and we should be prioritising prioritizing them. But 
Um, more importantly, I think in the short term, we should be prioritising the buildings we have um, that already have infrastructure and services and that can be occupied within within six months or less, um, rather than have people in, in temporary settings. And what what other sort of types of development do you think Orla might be suited in this in this scenario? Well, I think we need to be very careful about some of these new uses and how they're not being regulated. And um, there's been a lot of talk over the last year or two about co-living, and that's that's a type of I suppose it's like a type of hotel with very small bedrooms, and um, where people have really small spaces that can be as small as a parking space, and um, with a pull down bed, um, a kitchen counter, um, a toilet cubicle, and a, and a shower cubicle. Um, and where up to 40 people can be sharing a kitchen um, with no outside space in the building, no balconies, no parking on site, um, uh, you know, a dense overcrowded settings that where it would be impossible to self-isolate, uh, where it'd be very difficult to, to keep up distancing with other people in, in the kind of minimal standards, uh, and where people will realise it's very damaging to your mental health if you're trying to live in that setting with a lot of noise, a lot of um, strangers uh, coming in and out of the building, and, you know, given that a lot of people now have the option of, of working from home, I, I can't see that there will be much demand for people to pay, you know, the sort of 1300 a month that has been suggested for that. When close to the city now, you can have a, an apartment for that or you can have a whole house if you move further out and, and work remotely or, or travel into the city a couple of times a week. So, um, uh, unfortunately, that model has, has skewed a lot of development because uh, it, it, it has uh, increased site values because you can get such high returns from a site. Um, and that has been quite damaging and, and has probably delayed other more uh, appropriate developments. So I think we need to reevaluate some of those uh, lower standards that were brought in, um, including built-to-rent apartments that don't have cross-ventilation, that don't have balconies now. Um, if anything else, the last few months, I think we can reevaluate the real importance of, of having homes that are built for the future and not just housing people as a kind of um, supply target in the short term. Um, we have lots of areas in the city where housing is 100 years or more uh, old um, and that housing is, is perfectly usable and serviceable now and we really should be thinking that every new uh, home that is built now should have that longer term objective that it is future proof, that it has low energy bills or no energy bills. Um, and that people will want to live there, not just that they'll feel it's the only option they have. Okay. Orla Hegarty, who's an architect and also assistant professor of the School of Architecture, Planning and Environmental Policy at UCD. Orla, my thanks to you for joining us here on Between the Lines today. And of course, all this week on News Talk, we're shining a light on homelessness with Focus Ireland. You can give one night to shine a light on homelessness on Friday, the 16th of October. And for more details, you can check out their website at focusireland.ie. I'm afraid that's all we have time for this week. My thanks, as always, to the production team. Simon Keane and Stephen Jordan. But for me, Andrea Gilligan, have a good day. We may never work in the same way again. So reimagine the office with scalable workspaces that flex to your needs. Design-led interiors and world-class IT. Iconic offices have reinvented the future of working, so you don't have to. Hybrid offices, co-working, or custom floors for a global HQ. 16 prime Dublin locations. Infinite possibilities. Experience it for yourself. Visit iconicoffices.ie to reimagine how working can work for your business.